This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning, everybody. So we're uh, concluding our study on the leadership of the church and... uh, I'm going to be concluding on the role of an evangelist this morning. And as I was trying to uh, put together a study on this, um, you know, the text that came to mind was what you see up on your screen there, because uh, the reality about church leadership is all of these roles, they blend together in one form or another. And uh, as Clint said in his prayer, we are all evangelists in some way. So uh, I found this to be a very interesting study and, you know, hard to you know, to zero in on one specific part of it, but I'm going to do my best. Start out with a story. It's been about 110 years since Titanic. The greatest ship of its time sank on its maiden voyage, killing more than 1,500 passengers. The unsinkable ship had done the unthinkable. One of the unforgettable stories of the fateful event was of a preacher named John Harper and his passion to save souls. This pastor was a widower, and he boarded the Titanic with his niece and his uh, six-year-old daughter, Nana. And they were en route to the Moody Church in Chicago, named for its famous founder, Dwight L. Moody. He was going to be their their new pastor. And uh, they were moving to their new home and uh, very excited. He'd been a preacher before in Glasgow and London, so coming to America, it was just an exciting thing for him. Now, being a widower, when that ship started to sink, he may have been allowed to join his niece and his daughter, but instead he forsook his own rescue, and he chose to provide the masses on that ship one last chance to know Christ. And Harper ran person to person, passionately telling other people about Christ. And as the water began to submerge the unsinkable ship, Harper was heard shouting, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. He was rebuffed by a certain man at the offer of salvation, and so Harper gave him his own life vest and said, here, you need this more than I do. And up until the last moment on the ship, Harper pleaded with people to give their lives to Jesus. And when it went into the water, Harper went with it, and he struggled through hypothermia to swim to as many people as he could and he was still sharing the gospel with them. Eventually, he would lose his battle with hypothermia, but not before giving many people one last chance to accept the gospel. Four years after that tragedy, at a Titanic survivors meeting in Ontario, Canada, one uh, survivor recounted his interaction with Harper in the middle of the icy waters of the Atlantic. Imagine, they're floating there in, in the water, And he testified that he was clinging to ship debris when Harper swam up to him. Twice he challenged him with a biblical invitation, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. That'd be some baptism after there, wouldn't it? Well, he rejected the offer once, yet given a second chance and with miles of water underneath his feet, the man gave his life to Christ. Well, Harper succumbed to his watery grave But this new believer was rescued by a returning lifeboat. And as he concluded his remarks at that Ontario meeting of survivors, he simply stated, 
I am the last convert of John Harper. Sorry, I should have switched his picture. There he is. <clears throat> now go back to our text. Paul talking here. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. How seriously do we take being evangelists? If the Titanic was sinking, would you be rushing around trying to share the gospel? If you were in the water freezing to death, would you go not once but twice to an unsaved man talking to him about Christ? Would you give your life vest up to somebody who said, no, I'm not going to save. I'm, I don't want Christ. Get out of my face. And you say, here, you're going to need this more than I am. That, if that doesn't bring tears of conviction to our eyes, I really don't know what will. Because I have never had that kind of zeal about evangelism in my life, I'm sad to say. But I want to have. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things that are important in this passage. First of all, all the leadership roles mentioned here have a common source, Christ. He gave all of these things, it says. And second, all the leadership roles have a common purpose, to equip Christ's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. The word perfecting there is the Greek word katartismos, meaning complete furnishing. To completely furnish the body of Christ Right here, we see all the methods and forms of leadership that Christ established for that purpose. So we gather that ministry is not something that's only done by apostles, <clears throat> prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, but their job is to equip all of God's people for ministry, <clears throat> to build up the body of Christ. And however we want to understand these different roles of leadership that we see here, as I said, they all come from Christ, and they're all to equip us. Now, it may be that God is preparing you to submit to one of these forms of leaders in your life. Or, He might be calling you to become one yourself. My goal is to examine how the evangelist fits into church leadership today. So I want to start with what the word means. Now, our word evangelist comes from the Greek word euangelistos, uh, which is a preacher of the gospel. That comes from euangelid meaning to announce good news, especially the gospel, to declare, bring good tidings, preach the gospel. And that comes from the root words, you, meaning good, and angelos, meaning angel or messenger. Now, you may not know, but when you see the word angel rendered in the Bible, it means messenger. And it's not always talking about a heavenly angel. Sometimes it's just talking about a messenger of God, which could very well be a man. That's one of the downsides of the English language not being as precise as Hebrew. Isn't it interesting, though, that the same root word used to make up the term evangelist is the same one used to describe an actual being of the heavenly host? You know, being an evangelist is a very high calling indeed. Something we should be excited that we have the opportunity to be a part of. This is why Paul said in Romans 10 verse 15, How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful 
are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. On Wednesday, when we had our young men, Caden and Evan, up there preaching. I don't know that I was thinking their feet were beautiful, but I was thinking that is a beautiful, wonderful sight that we have young men preaching the gospel, getting their feet wet, as it were, teaching God's word, seeing the excitement and the passion in their eyes. Paul, by the Spirit, charged Timothy to do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. Well, what is that? If you go back a few verses, you'll find the answer. Preach the word in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. The primary job of the evangelist is to preach the word of God. Now, part of that preaching is done in a public manner. You see the apostles preaching in the temple, Stephen preaching to the Sanhedrin, Philip preaching in Samaria, Paul preaching in the synagogues. Paul preaching on the first day of the week to the assembly of the saints. So an evangelist is one who takes the heralding of the good news of Christ extra seriously. The evangelist has a heart for God, for his people, and especially for those people who have not heard and have not been adequately taught. Now, as we endeavor to get the gospel to people everywhere, Mark 16, 15, we appreciate the work that's done by these faithful preachers. We appreciate the knowledge and the zeal that a visiting evangelist brings to the pulpit as they make their circuits of local churches and they expound upon God's Word to encourage the souls found there with good news, to build sound doctrine upon a solid foundation of Christ and His Word. But we are in error if we conclude that, that is how, uh, that's what an evangelist's work is limited to, the public preaching of God's Word. Because the evangelist is also to be a defender of the faith. Paul said that he was set for the defense of the gospel in Philippians 1, verse 7 and verse 17. Observe the gospel preachers in the early church, and you will see them as defenders of the faith. Evangelists of every generation need to prepare themselves to defend God's truth against those who seek to destroy, distort, or delude it. And here's the important thing. Every child of God is given the duty to earnestly contend for the faith, Jude chapter 3. So the evangelist is going to be found daily fighting for the integrity of the gospel. But you'll find that he isn't to be content merely fighting these battles alone. Another aspect of an evangelist's work is to train others. An evangelist is going to teach others, men and women alike, to do what he does. An evangelist is not a glory seeker. An evangelist is not to be placed on a lofty pedestal to which others cannot obtain. Sadly, sometimes that's exactly what happens. Some evangelists begin to believe they have an authority that supersedes that of local church elders. Such an evangelist becomes a sort of super elder over a region of churches, but this is not biblical. In truth, an evangelist should be seeking to work themselves out of a job as it were, in a local church body. Because he trains them with sound doctrine and teaches them to evangelize for themselves. What he initially might have had to do, that church is responsible to take over in that community. Look at what Paul, an evangelist, said to his young protege, Timothy. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. 
And then 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Now at this point, Timothy had acquired both the knowledge and the know-how via his work and teaching experiences. What was he supposed to do with it? He was supposed to take what he'd learned and commit it to other faithful saints, sharing with them matters that would benefit them and train them to in turn be able to teach others. It's a continual, ongoing affair. And when one person in that chain ceases to perpetuate that work, it's limited comes grinding to a halt. We need gospel preachers to make this a priority with our young people again today. And we need our young people to do as Timothy did and seek out those strong evangelists for instruction in righteousness and training in the teaching and administering of God's Word to the people. Now let me just reiterate the point about gospel preachers being personal evangelists as well. Because an evangelist seeks opportunities to serve. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> by that, I mean that they do more than present God's Word inside of a church building. They do more than just preach sermons to a captive audience. An evangelist, a true evangelist, is a man who relishes, seeks for, and takes advantage of opportunities to teach the gospel in private one-on-one -on -one settings. An evangelist is first and foremost a servant. <clears throat> Who's an evangelist? Do we have one here? Well, I just, not to embarrass him, but I'm going to draw one example out in our congregation. That's Brother Phil evangelizing. He's told us many times the story of the men that he works with and how he personally takes the time to go back time and time again and talk about Christ to them and you see the emotion come forth. That's evangelism. But it requires a, an active seeking of an opportunity to serve someone else. We're surrounded by people we can learn from. An evangelist who isn't seeking opportunities to serve others in this way is very simply not an evangelist. They're a teacher. We need evangelists, along with our elders, leading the way in personal evangelism. It'll have a positive trickle-down effect on the rest of the local church, and it's truly one of the most important aspects of Christian leadership. If we didn't see those examples from the leaders of our church, uh, we're much less likely to be prompted to the same types of service. Acts 6, verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These are the first deacons or servants of the church that's being selected here. One of these men, Philip, went on to become, in my opinion, one of the greatest evangelists in the Bible. So I'd like to draw out some lessons this morning by looking at his example. 
First of all, an evangelist is called beyond the borders of the church. Acts 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. An evangelist is called outside of the walls of the church into a troubled, new, and unfriendly territory where there is a need for salvation, edification, encouragement, and even rebuke. Now keep in mind, why does it matter, for those who may not know, that he went to Samaria? <clears throat> well, for a Jew, to even pass through Samaria was a... It drew raised eyebrows from Jews and Samaritans alike, to say the least. Uh, the concept of the good Samaritan that Jesus gave was a confusing idea to the Jews. Even more incredulous was his asking a Samaritan woman to give him a drink. She had to be the most unclean person they could imagine. And then he told her that he was the prophesied Messiah, as in sharing intimate knowledge with her and inviting her to partake of, of that. Of all people, a Samaritan, a woman who'd had five husbands and now she had a live-in boyfriend. And by Jesus' time, it's important to understand that Samaritans, they're seen as outcasts, apostates, heretics worthy of fire and brimstone. Why is that? So Samaria is in what was the northern kingdom of Israel. And when they were exiled, you know, their, their conquerors physically took the people out of the land. They left a few people as vine dressers, but then they sent aliens into that land to maintain it. And these people, they took bits and pieces they could figure out about the true God and religion, and they formed an amalgamation in their own making that was heretical. And it became like a, a, a perverted shadow of true religion. And the Jews detested them for this because they had this perversion going on up there that was a mixture of so much wrong, but they, t they said that it was the worship of the only true and living God. And here Philip went. He went to these people that were hated. You know, Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection prior to his ascension, he gave the commission to go into the whole world and make disciples of people, and that included Samaria. And, you know, no one blinked an eye out of that group that he was talking to. The disciples at this point, they were beginning to understand what it meant to be an evangelist. And this commission is given to you and I as well. There's at least some aspect of evangelism that each of us is responsible for. Christ told me and He told you the same thing He told these disciples. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. In short, an evangelist is not just to have a bucket list of approved gospel meeting locations. An evangelist is instead to go to all places at the behest of the Lord through prayer and thanksgiving. And if you notice with Philip, Acts chapter 8, we're going to read verses 26 through 40, but we're just going to briefly comment on a couple of these verses. Verse 26, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is the desert. Notice, the evangelist is called somewhere. He's called by the Lord, and he is to make haste. The evangelist doesn't decide, the Lord does. And if you're wondering about who the evangelist should be preaching to today, the Lord already told us in, in His Great Commission. You preach to all nations. You preach to every creature. There is no selective process. Everybody you come across in every place at all times, we are to preach the gospel. Not the Church of Christ approved crowd. 
but all nations, all people, all ethnic groups. You realize, even in the early church, the first century church, these are saved Christians. It started in Jerusalem, and the church was Jewish entirely. There were no Gentiles in it. And there was great resistance to spreading beyond Jerusalem. In the early church, there were many Jews who didn't approve of teaching Gentiles. They didn't approve of teaching Samaritans. They didn't approve of spreading beyond Jerusalem. And then they tried to force those that Paul was evangelizing to essentially become Jews by observing dietary laws and becoming circumcised. Even Peter had to be told to not label what God had called clean as unclean. And we're facing a crisis today of so-called evangelists who withhold the teaching of God's and His Word from all but those who already agree with them. That makes absolutely no sense. You cannot evangelize those who already believe because they've already been saved. Evangelism is primarily taking the gospel and spreading the good news. We have to remember that to those people who need to hear it. And this mistake can be avoided if the evangelist is listening to God's direction. And when you hear God direct you somewhere, to someone, if you ever feel even a twinge, I should tell this person about Jesus, I should ask them if Jesus is their Savior, then you have to go. You have to do it. Verse 27, And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, and eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Now, I believe Philip hesitated here when he saw this man. I'll tell you why in a minute. <clears throat> but the Lord's going to tell him to engage with the unlikeliest of persons. Imagine for a minute that you were going to go out and you were going to spread the gospel, share it with somebody. Who would you talk to if someone that was uh, very powerful walked in here, the president, the mayor, whoever, um, are there certain people you would be intimidated to talk to? Because I imagine that when Philip saw this guy, it's like, <laughs> this guy is a eunuch in charge of all the treasure of the queen of the Ethiopians. He probably, I'm running God, who is it? That guy. And he stops. I just imagine for a minute, he just pauses for a minute because... Verse 29, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. It's almost like he says, Go on, talk to him. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest what thou readest. Don't be intimidated to share the gospel of Christ with anybody. Whatever else he may or may not have been, Philip was a man who listened for and heard the Lord. When he recognized the Lord commanding him to go, he wasted no time. It says he ran. And he offered himself in service to a stranger. I can't tell you how many times in my personal life where I have known that I had knowledge to share of Christ and I reasoned to myself that, well, the time's not right. The opportunity's not here. Once I get to this stage in life or have this job or have this kind of security, then that will be the time. Don't we all do that in some way or another? And that is such a tragedy. Remember what the Lord did with Philip. He said, go, get over there and do what I told you to do. Now, not everybody takes that interpretation of that scripture, but I'm telling you, it's a relevant interpretation. 
because we all hesitate at times. Well, what did the guy say to him in response, the eunuch? He said, how can I accept some man guide me when he was asked if he understood what he was reading? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. You know, now I think about sales in this regard. Um, you're always supposed to go ask for the sale. The worst you can be told is no, and very often if you persist, the person will say yes. That's the basic gist of it. And imagine for a minute that you look at a person and you're like, that is one curmudgeonly old man. He is not going to want to hear from me. He's lived his whole life. Everybody hates him and he hates everybody. He's the last person who's going to receive anything from me. And yet, when Philip went up to an unlikely person, he said, do you understand what you're reading there? Not only did the guy say humbly, unexpectedly perhaps, in a humble manner, no, how can I unless somebody teaches me? He said, why don't you come teach me? You clearly know what, what this is about. Trust God that he will give you the opportunity to expound upon Scripture if you do as you're told, if I do as I'm told, and approach those people, especially the ones that we might at first be intimidated by. In fact, I would go so far as to say, how about as we look out in our world and we start thinking, who am I going to go evangelize next? Let's pick the one we're most scared to talk to. Because once you overcome that, everybody else is going to be easy. And let's be honest, there's a reason why we choose the easy people, because they're probably already halfway there. Why don't you leave the easy work to the babes and you go take the man's or the grown woman's work, you know? Do the hard thing for God. He will empower you to do it. Because Philip discovered a man with a deep desire to be taught, a need for a teacher. You know, there's a place in the deepest heart, part of the heart, in every man or woman or child to be reunited and made right with God. They don't always know that's what it is. But there's an emptiness, there's a troubling spirit within every unsaved person. Because when we were ripped out of that Garden of Eden, it wasn't the physical place we were ripped from. It was the spiritual place in communion with God. Him being made right with Him. And man wants that back, even if they don't know it. And you know, they fight so hard. Atheists are the most religious people you're ever going to meet. You know why? The only people who can be that passionate about something that stupid are people that are wrestling with the truth inside their, their, their heart. They know there's a God. They hate it because they don't want to have to do what's required. Humble yourself and submit to God. That's just foolishness. Remember, the evangelist is like an angel. We're a messenger. These people need us to go to them. And if we don't do it, who will? Verse 32, the place of the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. He taught Jesus. Have you ever... Are you asking yourself when you read the Scripture of all the things that the guy could have asked about that could have been eternally recorded in Scripture, we see the guy saying, well, who is this Jesus? 
The evangelist begins with Jesus. He fills in the gaps with Jesus. He concludes with Jesus. Trying to apologize for the word and who Jesus was and that he is the only way to be saved never crossed Philip's mind. Being concerned with political correctness wasn't part of planning his lesson that day. The evangelist simply, truly, purely taught Jesus. And as you will see in verse 36, because he did it this way, a lost soul was saved. I don't know what to say, Brian, to somebody to be an evangelist. Yes, you do. One word, Jesus. And you just talk about Jesus. You tell them who Jesus was. You tell them why he came here, what he did, how that affects them. You just talk about Jesus. If you do that, look what happens in verse 36. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. Not Philip. Philip didn't command this chariot to stand still. The eunuch did. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Do you see the power of preaching Jesus? Evangelism is not as hard as it may initially seem. It's got nothing to do with the evangelist's education. It has nothing to do with his vocabulary. It has nothing to do with his oratory skills. It isn't about how he looks or how he dresses. It isn't whether he's an introvert or an extrovert. The work of the evangelist is from the Word of God. It is achieved through the Holy Spirit within him. Philip preached the Word, the easy and the hard to hear. You know, it doesn't tell us every word what he said, but I guarantee you he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father except by me. And when that eunuch heard that, he's like, whoa, stop the chariot, let's go. Down to the water right there. You know, you ever wonder about what body of water that was? They're out in the desert. It might not have been a very clean, big body of water. It could have been sewage runoff, for all we know. You ever thought? I just think about little things like that sometimes. Maybe this man was so moved that he would have jumped into any water he could to be clean. That's the power of preaching Jesus as an evangelist. A life was changed. A soul was baptized. Perhaps the course of an entire nation was impacted. You know, Ethiopia, it's not, biblically they say it's not exactly the same as the nation today, but <clears throat> that's called Ethiopia. But there's a very, very old Christian church in Ethiopia, one of the oldest in the world. And the Islamic folks over there are trying to wipe it out and persecute it. I sometimes wonder, is that church the result of this eunuch going back to his country and people? and telling about this evangelist named Philip who preached unto him Jesus, who baptized him. Now notice verse 39. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Isotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. I want you to notice the evangelist moved on. He heeded the call of the Lord, spread the seed, did the good work, and then went on to the next location where the Lord was calling him. City after city, home after home, person after person, Philip preached to them all as he kept moving. 
That's the difference between an evangelist and a teacher. See, I'm just a teacher right now. I'm here and I'm talking in the same place in the same location with you. But the evangelist is going to keep on going where there's a need. And something else that the evangelist does that's very important is they help establish congregational leadership and they correct, help correct, wayward congregations. Now, to substantiate this point, <clears throat> I'd like to examine the instructions Paul gave to yet another evangelist, Titus. Titus 1 verse 5, Paul talking here. For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. What we see here is Paul, who is likely the one responsible for planting the local churches in Crete, and an evangelist himself, instructed Titus to stay behind for a very specific purpose. He was to correct the shortcomings of the various churches forming on that island and ordain elders as Paul specifically had instructed him. Listen to verses 5 through 9 in a different translation. I left you in charge in Crete so you could complete what I left half done. Appoint leaders in every town according to my instructions. As you select them, ask, is this man well thought of? Is he committed to his wife? Are his children believers? Do they respect him and stay out of trouble? It's important that a church leader responsible for the affairs of God's house be looked up to. Not pushy, not short-tempered, not a drunk, not a bully, not money-hungry. He must welcome people, be helpful, wise, fair, reverent, have a good grip on himself, and have a good grip on the message. Knowing how to use the truth to either spur people on in knowledge or stop them in their tracks if they oppose it. That is what Paul told Titus to look for as he selected elders for church after church after church in Crete. We're starting to get into some sensitive territory now, aren't we? Are you telling me that an evangelist has the authority, even the responsibility to help in establishing elders in local congregations? Yes, they do. I went many years not knowing that. What better person, though, to do that than one who has given their life to the study and teaching of God's Word and who has likely planted new churches themselves, been through this process? The Holy Spirit no doubt rests strongly in such an evangelist heart, granting them prudence, wisdom, and grace. And furthermore, they're a third party. And they can get beyond potential disputes, be they petty or otherwise, amongst members who might be vying with each other for positions of authority and power. A third party. Indeed, as we continue to read, you may be surprised at what Paul has to say about some of the folks who were seeking to lead the local church bodies in Crete at the time. Titus 1, verses 10 through 6. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, or Jews, whose mouth must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said... The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Now, I have to admit, I had a chuckle at Paul's personality shining through in verses 12 and 13. You might be saying, what's so funny about that? 
Paul's a man who doesn't mince words. And he's one that wouldn't let political correctness ever stop him from saying what needed to be said. He refers to one of them, Epiponides, the prophet of their own. He was a Cretan. Epiponides was a highly regarded 6th century B.C. poet and philosopher from Crete. And his description of his own people had by this time become a proverb. He said, Cretans are always liars, they're evil beasts, and they're lazy gluttons. And you might think at this point, well, Paul is going to correct such an unkind assessment. But in verse 13, he says, no, this description is true. That's right. They're all liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> and then he says, so you, Titus, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and free from doctrinal error. That's an evangelist doing that in new churches. That's an evangelist picking through people who are seeking to lead the church. That's a heavy burden to bear. That's a very responsible thing or a, a, a thing of high responsibility to be a part of. And this is another firm characteristic of an evangelist. It's a duty that cannot be neglected. Titus 2 verse 1 but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Titus 3, 1 through 11 goes on and he expounds about primarily avoid foolish questions, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he is such, that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. You know what this is talking about? Sometimes the evangelist is going to go into a local body and he's going to be an arbitrator, as it were. He's going to sit and hear disputes. He's going to put down foolish questions. He's going to put down genealogies. You know, well, I came from this vaunted family, and don't you know who I am and where we came from, and don't you know what so-and-so did in the past? They're not ever going to be worthy to do anything here. And the evangelist comes in, and he stamps all that out, and he just sees to it that God's will is carried out in the selection of these leaders. Now, our times are no different from Paul's in that we still live in a fallen world and that we're affected by it. Evil intentions, sinful actions, and corruption can creep into even the church from time to time. That doesn't make us less of a church, but it does mean that from time to time, we as a church body may need correction. And who does that when the whole church is embroiled in conflict that they can't resolve. That is where an evangelist will step in. Now our times are different from Paul's, however, in that we no longer live in a society where correction is offered because we are truly living in the days Paul warned Timothy of when he said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us never become the type of people who will not heed correction, who will not hear the admonitions of the godly, because we only want, don't let it be because, we only want to hear things that affirm our actions. That's the state of the world today. Look at where it's gotten us. People can't even decide if they're male or female anymore. They don't know up from down. They call right wrong and wrong right. All of that is the result of 
refusing to hear correction and of there being a shortage of people who are willing to go and correct and rebuke. The role of an evangelist is very important. It's not a bad thing to correct people. It's a loving thing to correct people. As long as it's done in the spirit of love and forbearance with the glory of God being first and foremost. With the goal to restore godly leadership and direction in a body, you bet that is completely biblical to have an, a, uh, an evangelist come in and assist in those matters. You know, the evangelists, they have a mission that starts with preaching the word. That preaching is to both the saved church and the lost. The evangelist is supposed to travel from place to place, friendly and unfriendly, declaring the good news. That doesn't mean necessarily that you're planning a circuit. It just means that you're going in your walk every different place you go. You're looking for the need. Is, is you know, Christ, does he need to be preached here? That's what an evangelist does. Don't wait until you can go take a circuit of Europe to be an evangelist. You can do that in your school, at your home, at your place of work, when you go to shop, just anywhere you go. As they do so, they're to be great defenders of the faith. Don't you allow unrighteousness and evil and wrong to go unchallenged. We cannot do that. Our nation, founded on godly principles, is no longer a godly nation. It's nothing of the sort whatsoever. And you know why? Because the church stopped correcting. The church stopped teaching, stopped challenging, stopped going from place to place, unabashedly preaching Jesus. We have a great shortage of leaders called evangelists in this world and in this church. And without the evangelist, the church stagnates. Without the evangelist, the Great Commission oftentimes goes unheeded. And finally, remember that each of us are called to evangelize in those ways in which God allows us to do so. It isn't someone else's job. It's your job. It's my job. It's our job. We're called to serve the world in this way just as our Lord and Master Jesus Christ served. Do you remember what he said? John 13, 13 through 17. You call me Master and Lord. And ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. As we conclude our series on church leadership, I want to reflect back on those lessons that came before. You know, as we discussed, as the leaders of our congregation discussed, uh, what might we work together on uh, to put together as a sermon series? <clears throat> and leadership was brought up. And one of the things that we see, unfortunately, sometimes is just not enough people stepping up and doing their part. And this series has not been to critique that so much as to just create an awareness that there are opportunities for each of us to lead in a variety of ways. Leadership is not an option. 
It's what God has called us to do. You know, Clint talked on the general qualities of leadership, that it's not for somebody else to do. And he gave an example that's just stuck with me so well about his dad and him taking the trash out. Do you remember him talking about that? And I've already said it to one group of people, but I'm going to say it again. I remember thinking, you know, as his dad came up and said, you know, what would it be like if you just came up and, and, and did this without me having to ask you? And, you know, Clint, being the righteous man that he is, was convicted. Most people would say, Dad, you're just not getting the point. I don't want to know what it's like. The only reason I'm sitting here on the couch making you come tell me is because I'm trying to make it so difficult on you that you just quit asking me. Just do it yourself. As I don't want to do it. I've got other things I'd rather be doing. I can sit here and watch TV. I can go hang out with my friends. I can play with my toys, whatever they may be. Grown men, grown women have toys. I must admit that I tell God all the time, Brian, why haven't you done such and so? Well, I mean, I was just waiting on you to tell me, Lord. I didn't realize you wanted me to do that right now. I thought I could go do some other things and come back to it. You know, I've got to prioritize. We all do these things. And I would love to see everybody, young and old alike, just reassess and say, what can we better do to lead in our lives and in this church and in our communities? Everybody's going to have a different part to play, and we're all going to come together, and it's going to be a well-oiled machine because that's the way God has created it. But we must all be doing something. If you're doing nothing, that's sinful. I'm just going to call it like it is. Because God has given us commands to do these things. You may not do all of them, but you must be doing something. Leadership in the body of Christ is not a burden. It's a privilege. We have the opportunity to serve the master because he has entrusted us with that opportunity. Okay, if your mom or dad asked you to do something, you do it and probably because you feel like you have to. Then somebody you really love and adore or respect, maybe it's the president, maybe it's uh, some guy that uh, does something that you like, some woman, and they ask you to do it, and all of a sudden, boy, you're, I remember Carrie telling us we had our kids staying over with them for a week. She comes up to me and says, man, your kids are so hardworking, so generous. I offered them to do, I had them do some chores, offer money, like, oh, no, 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 we'll do it for free. She's like, they're so wonderful. I'm like, I don't know whose kids you've got over there. I'm just kidding. Our kids are generous and hardworking and all that. But it just made me chuckle because we have a tendency to do that, don't we? We will work harder for some people and some causes than we will for others. Have we gotten so comfortable with God that he's not the person we'll go and work hard for anymore? <laughs> I, I hope not. And sometimes we might get a little lazy, tired, but when you realize that that's happened to you, you just got to get up and start again. It's not the end of the world. Just pick up that burden and get to going again. That's the beauty of serving our Lord. He is abundant in grace and mercy. It's not too late. When we view leadership in the church in whatever capacity as a burden to run from and avoid, it says a little something about the state of our hearts. If we don't love to serve our Lord, then how much do we really love him? That's a hard question, but remember what Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. I'm going to close with a little short analogy. 
A boy just passed his driving test and asked his father when he could use the car. His father said, well, you bring your grades up, study your Bible and cut your hair, and then we'll talk about the car. A few weeks later, the father said, well, you brought your grades up and you've been studying your Bible, but you still haven't cut your hair. And the boy said, well, in the Bible, Samson had long hair, John the Baptist had long hair, Moses had long hair, even Jesus had long hair. And the father said, did you also notice they walked everywhere they went? Are you still walking everywhere in your spiritual journeys? Maybe all you lack to get in the key to your car, your spiritual car, is to submit to the service God has called you to. Let's love Christ by serving as He commanded us to. Let's submit to the leadership He's provided for us. Let's look for opportunities to establish the leadership in our lives and congregation that the Bible instructs us to. Let us be servant leaders for Christ. And in so doing, preserve the integrity of the church and change the world. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.